a very warm welcome to this Mastering the Game of Life podcast with your host, Paul Lowe. Paul offers wisdom, insights and tips for living a healthy, meaningful, purposeful life. On the back of overcoming extreme adversity, Paul has a proven track record of achieving life-enhancing results. He offers empowering advice and guidance to help people develop a mindset for success so that they can live with more happiness and prosperity. Through his Mastering the Game of Life podcast and books, Paul also helps people to get their own inspirational messages and powerful stories out into the world, as well as being involved in supporting many charitable organisations in their development, fundraising and projects. Hello listeners and welcome to this Mastering the Game of Life podcast episode where today I'm joined by a lady from Ohio in the United States of America, a lady by the name of Chris Putnam Walkerly. Chris, a very, very warm welcome to you. Thank you, Paul. Thanks so much for having me. And what a fascinating title on your website. It quotes you as a trusted advisor to the world's leading philanthropist. Wow. Tell us more. (laughs) Tell us more, Chris. Thank you. Yes. So uh, for the past 20 years, I have been advising philanthropists of all kinds and sizes and locations, uh, ranging from high net worth and ultra high net worth donors to leaders of Fortune 500 giving programs, uh, corporate giving programs, foundations, uh, really all to help them increase the clarity and impact and joy of their giving. And you've got a, I want to focus in, Chris, if we can, on your book, Delusional Altruism, Why Philanthropists Fail to Achieve Change and What They Can Do to Transform Giving. I mean, that's a very, very powerful title, isn't it? It is. It's very provocative intentionally. Mm. So tell us a bit about your book, because I do want to dive into one or two aspects of that. Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, I, I have been working with, you know, donors of all sizes and types for the past 20 years. And one common theme I continue to stumble across is that, you know, people genuinely want to make a difference. They want to allocate their funding, you know, whatever that amount, be it a thousand dollars or a million dollars, they want to allocate it to create change, to change the world, to have a lasting impact on whatever cause they care about, but are often getting in their own way. And they're holding on to these misguided beliefs that are preventing themselves from having the impact that they seek. And what's worse, Paul, is they often don't realize this is even happening. And so in the book, I try to show, you know, what delusional altruism is, how it manifests. There's seven different ways that it manifests and then what they can do differently to have more of a transformational impact on whatever issue that is or community that is. And to do that um, by also transforming themselves and how they give. Mm. Oh, you've just stole my thunder on that last bit. I thought I'm ready to come in with my next question around the most important giving is to ourselves. But you kind of touched upon that. Just dig in a little bit deeper on that. You know, before we before we influence externally, Chris, and we give outwards, what about that contribution to self? Because that is absolutely critical, is it not? It is. It's very, it's very critical. And it's interesting, you know, you'd think that people with wealth, either their own wealth that they're giving away, or, you know, sometimes these are professionals who are managing foundations. So they're basically giving away other people's money. 
But nonetheless, they have access to wealth. And you would assume that with that would come an abundance mindset. But what I find most often is a scarcity mindset, a sort of poverty mindset, if you will, where um, donors and funders believe that they have to maintain kind of a Spartan operation and really not take care of themselves or not invest in themselves and their philanthropy. They feel that all their money, all their charitable dollars need to go and help people, which seems noble, right? Of course you wanna help others, but I think that in order to help other people, you need to take care of yourself. You need to put your oxygen mask on first before you can help other people with their oxygen mask. And, and so that abundance is, it means a lot of different things, right? It means true self-care so that, especially now, you know, during this pandemic that we are taking care of ourselves, our health, we're getting enough sleep. We're, you know, talking to people when we, you know, when we need um, advice and guidance or just are scared and, you know, and, um, and want to, um, you know, get feedback and support from people, either family or friends or professionals, um, as well as I believe, you know, really investing in your, in yourself in terms of your own learning, the develop your own professional development and talent development, your infrastructure, your technology, you know, whatever it is, research, evaluation, to make sure that as a as a donor, as a funder, you're really equipping yourself with the the knowledge you need, the skills you need, the relationships you need, in order to be the most effective giver that you can. Um, you know, it's one thing to give money away to toward you know pick an issue, substance abuse treatment or domestic violence. It's another thing to really learn and understand what those needs are, disaggregate the data so you really unpack, you know, what's happening in your community and who's, who's, you know, missing out, who's not being served, building relationships with nonprofit organizations, non-governmental organizations to really understand what they need and how you can help them. To me, that makes you so much more of a successful philanthropist. But really, often what happens is the opposite. People fail to make those investments and take care of themselves. Mm, very, very interesting. Very interesting. Kind of slightly left field question on this one, Chris. I mean, you know, is this part of uh, corporate social corporate social responsibility? Do, do they still, you know, does that come under the, the banner of philanthropists or, or are we talking about two separate things here? Yeah, it does. Um, corporate social responsibility means a lot of things. It certainly includes charitable giving, and, and that can also include engaging your employees uh, through like matching gifts. So encouraging your employees to make donations to nonprofit organizations and the company matching that and, you know, so doubling the grant, if you will, uh, as well as volunteerism and, you know, really thinking about, you know, what is the purpose of a company, you know, beyond making money? What are you trying to accomplish? And how do you engage the entirety of your company? It's people, products, you know, surplus revenue to help support and be good corporate citizens. Um, think about the communities in which you're operating and what are their needs and how can you, you know, show up for your community you know, beyond whatever product or service you might be selling, um, as well as thinking about your investments. Um, and so ensuring that your money is being invested in ways that are aligned towards your, with your values and your uh, corporate purpose. So I think, you know, from a corporate giving standpoint, 
uh, you know, it's sort of more than charitable giving. It's kind of thinking about the holistic aspect of the company and its role in society, which is really important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, increasingly people, you know, especially younger generations, that's very important to them, you know, really understanding the company's purpose and shopping for products and services from companies that really align with their own values is increasingly important to people. And, and they see that as part of how they give back to society, not just volunteering or donating, but through their purchasing um, and making choices about which companies they want to support in that way. I want to pull up, before I start diving into, um, I'm going to randomly pick out, uh, you've got 15 chapters in your book, Chris, um, and there's some <laughs> fascinating titles. I mean, the the, uh, the challenge is going to be, okay, which one do we dive in on or which sort of half a dozen do we dive in on? But before we do that, if I may, I want to quote something from your book from a lady called Catherine P. Enright, President and Chief Executive, Council Foundations. And she said, how we give is just as important as what we give. I found that fascinating. How we give. Just just open that up a touch for us, Chris, will you? Exactly. So um, this manifests itself in a lot of ways and is me- in, in many ways is kind of the premise for the whole book, which is that, um, you know, it's not just giving money away. It's also thinking about the ways in which you do that. So, for example, um, a lot of funders will um, put tight restrictions on nonprofit organizations. They might give $5,000 or $50,000, whatever the amount is, but tightly dictate exactly how that money can be used and what it can't be used for and force the organizations to kind of go through lots of hoops just to apply for the funding, asking all kinds of questions um, that take the nonprofit a lot of time to answer, uh, forcing them to do you know, site visits and all kinds of things before a decision is made. And the money can only be used for certain types of purposes. So for example, some funders will say, well, we'll fund a program, but we won't pay for the people to run the program. So like literally they'll fund like a tutoring program, but they won't pay for the tutors it's kind of hard to imagine like how, mm. how that's going to happen. Right. Mm. Um, but they don't want to pay for personnel costs or they only allow the funding to be used for one year. They won't give multiple years of funding. And so the challenge with this is um, that you're really kind of hamstringing the nonprofit, the nonprofits who are doing, you know, really important work in society. They're helping kids get into school or college. They're, supporting mental health services, they're helping people get access to healthcare, whatever they might be working on. Um, But you're really hamstringing them because you're forcing them, A, to waste a lot of time just applying for funding. B, they can only get money for certain pieces and parts of their work. So they're constantly in a scramble mode of trying to piece together funding from different sources to make it a whole so they can actually run the program. Third, you're only giving them funding in one-year increments, so they really have no ability to plan out. You know, you want to be able to think five years down the road and hire the right talent to be able to do that, but if you can only attract people for a one-year gig, it's kind of hard to attract top talent. Um, And then there's a lot in the back end, there's all kinds of reporting requirements uh, for the nonprofit. Now, you know, certainly as a donor, it's completely fair that you want to know where your money's going, but 
I think donors like this misguided and delusional belief is that somehow you're being like good stewards of your money by putting all of these restrictions on the funding when chances are pretty high that if you're, you know, if you're funding a good organization, the leader knows exactly what they need to do. And it's much better like the how you give, like why not just give them unrestricted funding or multi-year funding to say, we really believe in you. And, you know, domestic violence is a serious problem. It's not going to be solved in a year. So let's give you three years of funding. We'll check in with you annually and see how it's going and see if you need to make course corrections. But we trust you to make the right decisions to be able to navigate, you know, as we've seen clearly in the past six months, you know, things can change and uh, crises happen of all kinds. And, you know, we want you to be able to navigate around those changes um, and, um, and through them and to be able to respond also to opportunities positive opportunities that might arise that you want to be able to seize quickly and not be kind of forced to hold on to these, you know, kind of blueprints of exactly what's supposed to happen when. Mm. So that's an example. I'd say if I, if, if I could just go on for one more example, another one would be thinking about um, giving money as a band-aid solution versus really investing in systems change and structural change, policy change. I mean, I think one thing that we've seen, you know, clearly in the past through this pandemic is um, inequity in our education systems across, you know, certainly in the United States and around the world where, you know, there's huge parts of the world that don't have access to the Internet, where people don't have computers uh, in their homes, where, you know, just inequitable school systems are not being able to respond um, in the same way. And so, sure, it's helpful to, you know, give kids backpacks full of school supplies or, you know, lend them a device to use. But I think what's more important is as countries or as society to think about how do we ensure that all kids have access to the same high quality education and that we have, you know, instead of a digital divide, everybody has access to the internet so that everybody can thrive. And so to me, that's like a different mindset. That's a different how of how you give. One might be, you know, back, you know, back to school supplies for one year that a kid uses, which is important. I suppose what that boils down to, if I'm hearing you correctly, Chris, is what return on investment do philanthropists expect? Do they want it qualitative, i.e. to know I'm making a real difference to people's lives, or is it more quantitative? You know those measurables of, I suppose, um, you know, yet again, as a massive generalization, going into the corporate social responsibility or part of that with major corporates. You know, and I and I studied this as as a part of a, a doctorate uh, oh, many many moons ago, and I did it exactly around this: people that give or corporates that give, are they good eggs, or are they buying positive? Lo- publicity and you know six and two threes you pays your money you takes your choice what's your thoughts around that chris well i think you always have both not just in corporate philanthropy but in family philanthropy you know there's certainly people that you know are using their charitable donations you know for ego driven purposes mm-hmm. or for publicity or pr uh uh or to you know to grow their business or whatnot but you know again i think you know there's nothing wrong, of course, with giving money away. You're, you're likely helping somebody, helping an organization, helping a community. But again, I think to really drive change, 
it needs to be a lot more than that. And I think, you know, really in the most, for the most part, I think most funders and corporations, you know, genuinely do want to make a difference, but are often misguided in how to do that. And so, for example, it's very common, you know, for, in, for corporate, uh, for companies to, you know, want to align with maybe national nonprofit organizations or organizations that are considered safe. Um, and they and and they can easily kind of pick and choose the ones that easily come top of mind, right? Uh, because they're well known, they've been around for a long time, and you know they could be doing really good work. I'm not saying don't fund them, but at the same time, it also is important to think about well, what are the real issues that you're focusing on? Like in the United States, with the police brutality and murders of many African Americans that have, I mean, quite frankly, been going on for a long time, but have been come to light recently. For a lot of people, um, there's a lot more interest and attention now on anti-racism and really thinking about structural racism, institutional racism, and how do we how do we show up and, and address that and work on ending racism in this country, and which is really important, obviously. And, um, you know, th- so then you got to think about, well, what kind of organizations do, can we support and are there organizations doing really good work on the ground in communities that are led by people of color, led by African-Americans working in those communities that might not be on our radar screen, but let's take the time to really do some research and figure out where are those organ- what, who are those organizations, let's build some relationships and see how we can support them. So again, that's just another example of, it isn't rocket science, it's not that complicated, but you do have to take the time and be willing to, you know, kind of change the lens with which you're thinking about your giving, in that case, to a more racial equity lens, and then think about, well, how, how are we giving, to whom are we giving, and in what ways can we support um, different kinds of organizations and people that are doing really innovative things, but we just haven't heard of them yet. Mm, absolutely. So, as alluded to um, earlier on, let's have a let's start to have a look at dive into um, into one or two chapters. Let's naturally start at the first one. You save money on all the wrong things. Boy, do I love that title! Tell us about that, Chris. <laughs> yes, funders save money on all the wrong things, and this happens all the time. So, this is really kind of getting at that scarcity mindset that I mentioned earlier. But and and. Uh, and it's not just not investing in yourself from a financial perspective, but it really is a mindset. It's a mindset that somehow like as a donor, um, either, you know, you limit yourself based on your current capacity. So you think, well, I don't have the staffing to be able to accomplish something. So I'm not going to try as opposed to thinking about, well, who could I partner with to really leverage uh, other people's capacities so we can have a greater impact. Or related, believing that you're too small of a funder to make a difference. And, you know, I know your listeners aren't necessarily billionaires or millionaires, right? A lot of us, we give $1,000 a year uh, to support uh, charitable causes, not a million. And so, but I think we we can all easily, and but quite frankly, even millionaires can think, I don't have enough money to make a difference. Um, but again, thinking about instead of what what you don't have, think about, well, how can I be, um, the abundance mindset is thinking about how can I really leverage that funding that I have with other funding that could be with other, other donors. It could be with public dollars. 
um, other corporate dollars, other resources to have a bigger impact. A lot of times too, interestingly, uh, wealthy individuals believe they don't deserve um, to invest in themselves and to support them to, 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 gr- to grow their philanthropy. And it's often out of guilt, uh, especially people who have inherit their wealth comes from an inheritance. They didn't earn it. Um, or, you know, they did earn it. It came from the sale of a business, but, but they didn't really expect to have a lot of wealth, you know, growing up. They never really thought they'd be in this position in their lifetime. And so there's a guilt that can be associated with that. And so people can actually feel like, well, I have to just help others. My money, all of my charitable dollars have to go out into the community. It'd be bad for me to invest in like a coach or an advisor to help me navigate this philanthropic journey or invest in doing some research and needs assessment so I can understand the community or I take the time or I go to a conference or whatever it might be, right? So it's this belief that you don't deserve something. Um, as well, as I mentioned, you know, lack of investment in your own infrastructure. I mean, just look at technology, for example. I mean, how important technology has been uh, to us all in the past six months. And, you know, a lot of it is free, like Zoom. But still, you have to learn how to use Zoom if you hadn't learned how to do it before. And you might need to invest in in things like being able to get money out the door quickly, uh, make wire payments as opposed to writing checks, all kinds of things. Um, it doesn't have to be complicated, but you do have to do it and make that investment. And then certainly, I think a, a huge way that the scarcity mindset shows up and saving money on all the wrong things is, as I mentioned, really not investing in the nonprofits that you want to support. So, you know, I mean, don't as a donor, if you're trying to make a difference on, let's say, early childhood education or whatever the issue might be, you know, don't you want those organizations working on that to have, you know, top talent, uh, a great board of directors that's really engaged, you know, strong finances, a diverse, you know, fundraising abilities. They're really raising money from lots of people, Um, you know, great research. They're evaluating their effectiveness and making continuous improvements. They have a clear strategy. Like you want all of those things, right? You want the best, most talented, equipped nonprofit to be driving change on the issue you care about. But as the donor, you save money on all the wrong things. So you you refuse actually to invest in any of that, right? And that stuff costs money. It costs money to do an evaluation. It costs money to you know hire a talented CFO uh, to make sure the operation is running smoothly. And so uh, by saving money, by saying, oh, you know, we can't, our grant can't go for that. We just want to help, you know, pay, you know, whatever the, the help the kids get the education that they need. Right. But not recognizing that those kids aren't going to get the education they need. If the organization that's providing that service isn't equipped and strong and positioned to be able to do that. And so I believe, you know, another chapter in the book is about an abundance mindset. And that really talks about recognizing that, you know, to be, to have the greatest impact, we need to be be the best philanthropists and donors that we can be in our nonprofit, non-governmental partners need to be the strongest that they can be as well. Mm. Very interesting. Chapter two, Chris, you are (laughs) fearful. (laughs) <laughs> Three simple words struck dread into me. It did struck dread. You are fearful. 
Tell us about that, this word fear, this this naughty F word, fear. <laughs> yeah, what's interesting is that uh, I believe donors uh, of all kinds feel a lot of fear, you know, even, even when we're not in the biggest global crisis in a century, right? Um, you know, in normal times, quote unquote, normal times, donors feel fearful. And I think this is kind of the biggest reason behind that scarcity mindset. It's all fear. And, you know, there's lots of different kinds of fear that donors experience. And I think it's important, you know, for your listeners, again, you know, some of you might be involved in charitable causes, either as a donor, or you serve on a board of directors, or you support or volunteer. But it's important to recognize the fears that the the donors have, so that you can kind of help them and navigate around this. So one of them is a, quite frankly, just fear of kind of coming out, if you will, in support of a cause or an issue. So a lot of people feel fearful that if they publicly state, you know, the, the issue or cause they care about, they will be criticized publicly or in social media um, by people who disagree with that issue or who don't think that's the most important issue for the donor or funder to be focusing on. And so you can actually, you know, just be fearful of being public about it. Related, a lot of donors feel fearful about being about exposure. They feel fearful of other people knowing how much money they have and that there's funding, they have money available to give away. So this happens a lot with, um, and I was actually talking with a woman uh, from Barclays Bank uh, in London, private bank, who said, you know, one of her clients experienced this kind of fear when her husband sold their business and they went from kind of average people to extraordinarily wealthy people overnight. And she wasn't prepared for it, nor were her, um, and, 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 and it, it caused her a lot of pain. Now, you know, she also said, trust me, I understand I'm not experiencing, you know, this is not a, a bad kind of pain to have suddenly having wealth, but, you know, it caused her to change. It impacted her relationships. It impacted the way people looked at her. And thought about her. She didn't quite know what to do with it. So it actually caused a lot of stress and fear. And so, you know, if, if when these kinds of fears happen, what it can do is it can shut people down. It can cause depression. You know, it can cause a lot of problems. And when you think about, you know, unlocking philanthropy, you want people to feel confident and excited and engaged, not terrified and, you know, distraught. Uh, another fear is a fear of failure. And so many people worry that I might invest in this organization. What if I invest in it and support it and they don't achieve the outcomes that we expected? Or what if I am part of this big initiative in my community to tackle some social problem, but it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't get the traction that we think it's gonna, gonna take that it's gonna achieve. And so they fear failure, fear taking risks, and kind of consequently either don't give or give to more, you know, sort of safe programs, which, you know, could be doing really good work, but might not be trying new things or might not be innovative. And of course, you know, if you take risks and are innovative, you know, sometimes you will fail along the way, but you can learn from that failure. What I want to do now, listeners, uh, Chris's book. So let's just 
Let's just slow things down and remind ourselves of the title. Delusional altruism, why philanthropists fail to achieve change. That kind of sums up the first part, the first seven chapters of your book, Chris, does it not? With then the other eight chapters in part two and what they can do to transform giving. I want to park the last eight chapters and I want to dive in now by way of coming to a close on this part one, chapter seven. And before I quote to the listeners what that is, Chris, I just, and I'll give a big clue away here, listeners, by quoting one of my own insights around questions. And it's this, the bigger the question, the bigger the answer. The bigger the answer, the greater the awareness. The greater the awareness, the greater the outcome. And that leads us nicely, Chris, into your chapter seven by way of bringing this part one to a close. You ask the wrong questions. Hmm. Tell us about that. Exactly. Yeah, I think too often funders, and this applies to all of us, really, but too often funders really start with the wrong questions. They seem like good questions. But again, that's the delusion. Um, And by asking the wrong questions, the problem is it can send you down the wrong path. And so one of those questions is asking how do we do something before asking what are we trying to accomplish? So, you know, too often we people jump into the how, which to me, another analogy for this is focusing on tactics before focusing on strategy. So they'll say, you know, okay, we want to increase arts education among young people in our community. So how do we do that? You know, are we going to hire more arts teachers? Maybe we should um, invest in more arts, you know, arts organizations in the community and see if we can bring them in. Or, you know, do we, or is the how, you know, um, do we uh, train teachers or, you know, So people kind of jump into the how of what they want to do. And the problem with that is, you know, all of those could be great ideas. You could spend a day coming up with all the different hows to accomplish something, right? But what you need to focus on first is the what. You know, what are we actually seeking to accomplish? Are we seeking to have, you know, best-in-class arts education in our community? Are we trying to um, recognize that arts is actually an economic driver in our community. And if we can position young people with the artistic skills that they need or um, the skills and not just the arts sort of per se, but in the, the business of the arts of running a theater or a orchestra or whatnot, then we can actually have a workforce development, you know, kind of component and, and really think about how do we grow the economy by building the talent and pipeline of our people And so until you know your what, what you're trying to accomplish, you can't possibly know your how. You can't possibly know the best way to get there, how you want to accomplish that. And I think too often, if if your listeners have ever been in a meeting that felt like it went around in circles and nobody could come up with an answer and everyone walks away at the end exhausted and frustrated and there was no conclusion, then chances are people were focusing, swirling around this how, these how questions before clarifying what their objective is. What do we, what's the big picture? What do we want to accomplish in the next, you know, five years? And then how do we do that? So that's just one of the, one of the many um, wrong questions that 
funders ask. And then interestingly, in the next uh, beginning of part two of the book, the next chapter is 12 questions that I do believe all donors should be asking. What a beautiful segue. That that was done very silkily smoothly, Chris. Oh, you've done this before, haven't you? You've done this before. <laughs> I might have written a book or two on it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so by way of uh, bringing things to a close then, Chris, firstly, I want to thank you immensely for these invaluable, you know, these invaluable insights because there is, um, obviously it goes without saying, um, there's a need for, the, there's a more than ever a monumental need for this work and this this giving, this transformational giving, and we'll speak more about that later, I'm sure. Um, so immense gratitude for the work that you do generally, and more specifically, taking time out to share with with us around, you know, just some some basic insights, you know, from a personal level around things like fear, for example. So I just invite you in now, Chris, to say, well, you know, if listeners want to find out more about, you know, the work that you do, who you are, et cetera, et cetera, how, how can we get in touch with you? Oh, thank you so much. Well, a couple of ways. One is uh, my website, and that is putnam-consulting.com. So they can connect with me there. Of course, if they would like to purchase the book, um, that can be done. Uh, there's a lot of different retailers, of course, Amazon, around the world, and Barnes and Noble and others, and they can go to a website, which shockingly is called delusionalaltruism.com. <laughs> and uh, that will show them all the different links to the different retailers. Um, and then I also invite your, your listeners, um, if they'd like to learn a little bit more about some of the challenges and opportunities that donors are experiencing during this crisis, I have a great article that is called um, Six Mistakes philanthropists make during a crisis and what they can do differently. And it applies not just to a pandemic, but also to um, really any crisis, a, a natural disaster, an earthquake, a terrorist attack, whatever it might be. And so that you can download if you go to sixcrisismistakes.com. Uh, you can download, download that and it's a free and short article that I think provides a lot of insight right now. Superb. Thank you, Chris. Thank you once again. And so there we have it, listeners. Chris Putnam-Walkley from Ohio, United States of America. And all that remains for me to say now, listeners, and you know exactly what I'm going to say, predictable as ever, remember, mastering the game of life starts by embracing our hearts. Thanks very much for listening to this Mastering the Game of Life podcast episode. If you found it interesting and helpful, drop a line to Paul via paul at paul-low.com. With any thoughts or questions you may have, he'd love to hear from you and he'd be more than happy to respond. Alternatively, check out Paul's website at www.paul-low.com. Remember, mastering the game of life starts by embracing our hearts. 